we're back for another episode of repro radio i'm simon this is taylor and today we are talking about pregnancy the placenta and the complications of pregnancy in humans yeah so it's maybe something maybe a topic that we've had a bit of trepidation about covering because it's just not what either of us work on I've always found the placenta really interesting and I've, I've maybe dabbled a little bit in doing some, some mouse placenta work, but it's something that I know is a huge field in reproduction, kind of in its own right. Like it, there are societies that are purely based on placenta research. So it's kind of a big deal, which is why we thought we would talk about it. Yes, it's time to embrace the things that we <laughs> that we're afraid that we, of, <laughs> that we're afraid of, and uh, that are the unknown for us. So, who better to speak about this than Professor Natalie Hannon from the University of of Melbourne, who uh, is also an associate dean there for diversity and inclusion, and she's going to talk about some of her incredible. Uh, research on pregnancy complications and some of the treatments that uh, she's been uh, developing uh, and and putting into practice with uh, an, an array of, of collaborators there. So this is an episode which is is really going to be applicable to uh, you know fundamental researchers for those that are, are doing clinical research as well for clinicians. And then look, you might be somebody that's just stumbled across this. Uh, podcast or this topic in a in a search on the internet of of you know you might have concerns around some of these um, really they're quite scary these pregnancy complications um, you're going to learn more uh, about that and hopefully come away informed and um, you know a little bit have a, have a, a better understanding of, of the sorts of things which which can can go on and how they might be be treated. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. And and Nat did start her research career as a kind of fundamental reprobiologist. So she's gonna hold our hands through the the clinical part of this as well. And for our ECR for this episode. Uh, it's actually a good friend of mine who I worked with in the States. So it's Dr. Rachel West, who I know will give us some really interesting research on on more kind of fundamental placental biology and implantation as well. So really looking forward to that too. Great. Well, let's uh, jump on into our interviews and uh, we'll also, as always, be speaking to Naomi for Repro News. This episode is sponsored by Zoetis, a global leader in animal health. Now, Zoetis are well known in the repro world for making cedars for estrus synchronization. Having put many a cedar in myself, I can tell you how simple they are to use. It's pretty much the only easy part of running a field fertility trial. If you'd like more information, check out zoetis.com.au. So today we have the great pleasure of chatting to newly Professor Natalie Hannon from University of Melbourne. And today we're going to talk all about something that scares me a little bit, the placenta, um, pregnancy and its complications. 
So welcome, Nat. Thanks for joining us on Repro Radio. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm thinking this podcast is just a fab thing and I'm really excited to be one of your guests. So thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So to start off with, um, I want you to tell us a little bit about what kind of piqued your interest in reproduction and pregnancy and how is your kind of story or your research program developed from there? It wasn't actually until my friend who I used to carpool with, she said, oh, I have to go, I'm going to go to this open day at Prince Henry's Institute, which is now Hudson um, Research Institute. And she said, I'm just going to go because I want to look at honours projects. And I said, okay. So I was getting a lift. I said, I'll meet you after. And she said, oh, look, there's free beer and pizza. So why don't you just come along? (laughs) So I was like, okay, fine. So I went across with her and, um, I heard an amazing presentation from Professor Lois Salomonson, which many, I'm sure many of the audience will know of, and it kind of struck me. She was talking about this um, disconnect that some women are infertile and have to go through assisted reproduction, IVF, in order to achieve pregnancy and have a family. And then there's other women who have, you know, more children than they want necessarily and there's areas of social disadvantage in countries where, you know, contraception isn't really offered and there's no new contraceptions coming through. That was it. I emailed her the next day (laughs) um, and put my plans for my teaching career on hold. I'd gotten in to do um, a diploma of education, but in the end I thought, let's just do honours. Loved it. So um, I did a project on menstruation and how how the uterus remodels each month, how the lining of the uterus, the endometrium remodels each month, and I just, I was hooked. You know, I went on to look at embryo, embryo implantation as well um, as an early postdoc, but I actually started incubating my own embryo. And um, during that time, you know, really exciting. I was was always worried I would have issues with conceiving because of the work that I did. You know, there's one in seven Mm -hmm. couples are infertile. Um, But actually that wasn't my journey, but my baby actually had a major congenital heart defect. And Mm. so I think it struck me. I was a bit further away from where that translation, that area where I'd be helping women and and looking yep. at, um, you know, trying to develop new therapies for pregnancy complications for women like me in position. And so, yeah, I, um, I kind of took in a new space and went really into the obstetrics field and, and um, therapeutic development and diagnostics in the obstetrics arena, I guess. So interesting. It's it's really cool, I think, when people bring that kind of personal lived experience to the research that they do. It just it brings a, a certain depth to it that I think you don't get otherwise just having had that experience, knowing what it's like, and I guess knowing what the impact of your work could be too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it drives you that little bit more. Okay, so to start off with, I guess let's let's kind of go chronologically. So let's talk first about implantation. So... I guess just to give people more an idea of where this field is at at the moment, can you give us a bit of a rundown on kind of what the most important factors kind of regulating implantation are? With IVF, as we know, it's been around for humans, um, you know, since Louise Brown, the first IVF babies quite a while ago. And they've really come leaps and bounds, I think, with the embryo development side of things. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, there's really critical factors regulating that actual implantation. And I think 
at the moment, there's still a lot not known about the endometrium or the maternal side, the role that the maternal side plays. The endometrium itself is such a unique, complex environment. You've got this lining, um, which is the epithelium. You'll have these glands, these little pockets, um, which are lined by this epithelium, but they have a unique role themselves in producing uh, uterine secretions, or some people call it histotroph or uterine milk. And those factors there are essential really for regulating that receptivity. So the allowing the endometrium to accept and receive that blastocyst and allowing the first stages of implantation. And then directly below that layer, you've got this amazing fibroblast stromal cellular compartment, which that undergoes, you know, a real critical change um, in order for implantation to occur. And these cells, they, they go from this stro stromal fibroblast-like structure to these big, fat, juicy cells just pumping out these factors that you're talking about that are critical for not only attracting and regulating the invasion of this embryo or the trophectoderm placenta it eventually becomes, but also regulating the maternal spiral artery remodeling of those major arteries and they bring in leukocytes and immune cells. Um, these factors bring in these cr critical cells to basically sit and regulate the remodeling of the endometrium, but also the vasculature. And this is essential because that's the first early stages of placentation, ultimately. And, you know, if you don't have the right factors at that time, then either you don't get implantation, so you'll have pregnancy loss, you know, miscarriage. Um, or implantation doesn't even initiate sometimes if you haven't got that receptive lining. But then sometimes pregnancy does initiate and then you, if you haven't got the right factors and the right cell types and the right microenvironment basically, you end up not developing a proper well-functioning placenta and then you can get placental insufficiency which goes on to impact the health of that pregnancy and the health of that infant. So obviously a really critical process that's uh, happening there, but, you know, still very complicated and we don't necessarily know everything that's happening. Mm. I guess given that we still don't necessarily know all of the mechanisms involved, involved can you just speak to a little bit about kind of the success rate of implantation? So... Like we know in, for instance, in human IVF that while fertilization rates can be really high, where things tend to drop off is typically after embryo transfer. So they're, they're um, kind of fertilizing properly. They're developing in vitro at the pre-implantation stage really well. But then once they get to that point of implantation, they fail. So I'm just interested to know you know, are there any thoughts about why that success rate is so low in, um, I guess, um, ARTs, but then also what happens in natural conception? Like, is it very common that embryos actually don't implant? So it's it really interesting. And really to think that I started my PhD in 2003 and was looking at um, essentially the, the rate-limiting step of implantation, which is the, the endometrial side of things as opposed to the embryo. 
And sad to say that the field hasn't really moved um, much in this time. Of course, we know a bit more, but we still don't understand that intricacies. And I think it's talking to what I was saying before about the complex nature of the maternal interface in the first instance. But as you say, even in normal um, conception or conception in, in vivo or in the body, we do know, well, we, we estimate there's probably around 50% of those pregnancies will not actually go on to produce, a, uh, you know, a viable um, baby. So we're, they're lost at different stages, but it's critical that that early implantation phase is, is properly regulated and that's the shame of it in IVF. We can't seem to get around that at this stage. And so there's some great work being done on looking at what makes the uterus receptive there's also some new theories, well, not that new actually, but um, some theories where they are looking at when you've got a perfectly normal um, embryo, so it's um, had um, PGD or prenatal genetic diagnosis or testing, they, they will transfer these embryos in, but they will get recurrent implantation failure so that you, you never get implantation. And there's some thoughts that that is um, something to do with the embryo, partially maybe, but more likely <clears throat> that uterine um, environment is not receptive to hosting and accepting uh, an implantation. There's also some work that suggests that the uterus itself um, can also sense, in some cases in natural conception, where there might be um, an issue with the embryo. So you might have trisomy or aneuploidy and the endometrium sometimes selects out so it won't allow that pregnancy in the first instance so down the track those couples will will undergo investigation and they'll find that you know they've got a high level of aneuploidy so there there is some hypotheses that both the blastocyst and the endometrium have to be ready they have to be in synchronized unity so and this can be dysregulated in ART technologies, particularly where hormones and things are, are given to these women. But ultimately, for a really successful, healthy um, fetus or you know embryo and then baby in the in the long run, you need both to be in synchrony and both to be um, activated or receptive to for the implantation stage. In a embryo transfer context, uh, over the years we've heard a number of different add-ons be uh, advertised by reproductive technology companies, things like endometrial scratching, uh, embryo glue. What was the story or probably still is the story with some of those and, uh, and why are they bollocks? Firstly, I would say unless we've got a randomised controlled trial or, you know, something where they've really done a proper study uh, investigating this, I personally think it's a little bit of this magic science that we, um, you know, often we'll call them cowboys or, um, you know, uterine, you know assisted reproductive <laughs> technology experts that are not experts. And so I really think that we must advocate for proper trials. Um, secondly, there is some studies, some preclinical studies or some research studies that would suggest that aggravating or removing the lining of the endometrium, um, sometimes the next cycle there is increased success in pregnancy or implantation. And that could be because 
part of the decidua, these cells um, that transform in the receptive phase are left behind and not shed properly at menstruation. The looking at the studies, I think there's some merits in it, but again, I would really want to see a randomized control trial before we start actually charging patients um, for these services. And you'll know there's other blood tests and things that that some people order, but the actual scientific basis behind them is not there. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. They'll look at a blood test for, for example, uterine natural killer cells. But they're not in the circulation. Their natural killer cells are actually quite a distinct phenotype. And yet, you know, we'll have um, reproductive um, clinicians ordering these blood tests and, and associating a risk of miscarriage. And it's actually the opposite to what we actually know. Uterine natural killer cells are essential at the implantation site for uterine artery remodeling, so that major blood vessels, so that the placenta can basically tap into the maternal blood supply and set up a, a good, healthy, well-functioning placenta. As scientists, we've got um, our work cut out for us to actually communicate and advocate for proper trials and proper studies. Kind of on the flip side of that, is there anything that you're seeing that's really getting to that point after having had randomized controlled trials that's really close, if not already actually being clinically implemented, that will have some impact on implantation rates? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly um, some IVF clinics using, you know, enhanced media formulations to help embryo culture. There's, there's, uh, you know, this is not new. There's some great things looking at the um, embryo's development in time lapse. So there, so you can see how the embryo developed. But again, there's still not that true understanding of the molecular or biological mechanisms at that level for us to to know exactly why that works better. What I think is probably an issue um, is that a successful pregnancy is not one that is um, achieves a positive on a pregnancy test. A successful pregnancy to me is a baby that's born well and healthy and is able to go home. And so part of the issue with increased implantation could well be that we're actually having these pregnancies, um, we're getting past some of the barriers, but the actual quality of the pregnancy, the quality of the placenta and the maternal environment and the health of that pregnancy is not necessarily there. And that's an area of real concern because then the obstetricians who weren't part of the um, the you know the reproductive medicine clinical um journey they are now handed these women these mothers with a pregnancy on board that is you know um probably not very healthy with an insufficient placenta and from that we get these major complications of pregnancy such as preeclampsia or fetal growth restriction and the issue with that is you end up either having a serious impact on the maternal on the mother so on her system and that's not just during pregnancy. She can die from preeclampsia during pregnancy, but if she does survive, she's at an increased two- to five-fold risk of developing cardiovascular disease later. Now, there's a whole theory of whether is the pregnancy the stress test in that situation or um, is, you know, is the actual pregnancy or the preeclamptic pregnancy causing damage to her maternal vascular system. So that's another issue for another day, I guess, but you, you've got this issue that you'll have a um, dysfunctional or a poorly performing placenta 
and then it has knock-on effects to both mother and baby. And where you don't <clears throat> have placenta per se, uh, preeclampsia per se, you might have fetal growth restriction. And we know that when a baby doesn't grow properly, so it's growth restricted, it's the single biggest risk factor for stillbirth. So there's around one in 131 stillbirths every day in Australia. And the biggest risk factor, yeah, and it's not talked about very much at all because of there's, you know, this sense of um, it, it's just a really, really tragic thing. But by being small, <clears throat> that is your single biggest risk factor um, for being fetally growth restricted that you would, that that pregnancy would end in stillbirth. It's such an interesting point that you raise that, you know, the idea that implantation may be a physiological hurdle for reproduction and potentially embryos that are not passing that hurdle or pregnancies that are not passing that hurdle, it's for a reason. And, you know, that that may predispose to other pregnancy complications. So I guess it's something for people to keep in mind thinking about the research that they're doing. Okay, if we really want to target implantation, sure, it's great if we raise implantation rates, but then what are the consequences important yeah. to consider as well? Absolutely. And as a, as a mother um, who, you know, it's the greatest thing I've ever done, and thinking about mine being complicated, would I go back and um, not want, you know, mine was different, mine was a congenital anomaly in my um, beautiful son, but it's not something that I'm saying we shouldn't work towards fixing. What I think is there should be possibly a greater collaboration between reproductive medicine clinicians and the you know the obstetricians and the researchers looking at this so we can really try and tease out what it is that's um, going wrong as you say going awry and can we actually you know enhance some of these things that we know would be beneficial for a healthier implantation a more well remodeled spiral artery and so, of course, I'm not saying to those couples that are infertile that maybe this is just you shouldn't go ahead and, um, you know, try and achieve a pregnancy. What I'm saying is we've got to weigh up <clears throat> why there's certain things happening and how can we mitigate some of those risks and, and how can we enhance some of the things that we now know are beneficial to a pregnancy. Absolutely. And, yeah, a great point that, you know, pregnancy is a continuum. It's... It's everything from gamete production through to live offspring and then them growing up into adults as well. And people in reproduction research work all across that spectrum, but I think it's important to get some cross-collaboration so that you're not just working in your own little box of, you know, I just look at fertilization and nothing else. Well, what happened before that, what happens after that, it's all important. Yeah, absolutely. And even the first few years of the child's life, um, you know, and, and postpartum period for the mother. So we've already spoken a little bit or a lot maybe about the placenta. Um, interested in some of those studies that have, have come out, uh, particularly seen some amazing photos of developing lambs in like plastic bags with mm -hmm. oh, things yes. plugged into yes. them. <laughs> so are we are we ever going to get to this, you know, point of fully in vitro gestation or is the placenta just totally too complex an, an organ to ever get there? To be honest, thinking about the biology, I think we'll never get through um, that early stage of implantation and placentation out of the body. But if we even we could borrow some um, 
ideas from the marsupial. And if you think about how the first part of the gestation obviously occurs in utero, but um, a lot of the development occurs after in the pouch. So the, the first part of gestation obviously has occurred in utero and they bring that, that fetus or the lamb in this case out. But making sure that that lamb um, or that fetus doesn't take its first breath so it doesn't activate the, the pathway of, you know, post-birth, I think is really critical. But it's the data there is looking quite strong that for prim for prem babies or premature delivered babies, there might be a way that we now can think about actually, you know, sustaining that life or continuing that development while they're too too um, immature or not ready yet to survive without some intervention so that those neonates coming out too early, which we know will have long complications through life, you know, or higher risk of more complications through life, perhaps if we can keep them, you know, in in that situation for a bit longer in, in a more uterine environment situation, maybe their quality of life would be enhanced. We've talked a little bit about pregnancy complications already, but I just wanted, um, I guess for clarity's sake, to get a bit of an idea about what the most common pregnancy complications are. And I guess kind of what's what are the ones that we're most worried about? Is it the ones that are most severe or most common? We should be worried about all because if you think healthy start to life is the best thing for that individual so that they can go on to th- thrive as a as a child and then an adult but we're looking at a real issue with um, obesity as we we know and we've got um, with that an increased risk of gestational diabetes there's there's other pregnancy complications I think the most serious and severe ones is actually ones we've we've touched on already but um, can't stress enough that the the amount you know we lose around half a million babies a year from preeclampsia and you know it's not just in the the, um, developing nations we we do see a higher incidence there for sure because they don't have the facilities we have in in the western world in the hospitals to to basically bring that baby out but we also lose over 70,000 mums a year from preeclampsia and that's not the true um, you know death toll in in honesty because as I mentioned before These women are at serious risk of cardiovascular disease, heart failure, and we know that they've got an increased association of risk of early death and not not reaching their full life expectancy because of that pregnancy um, being complicated with preeclampsia. And as I mentioned, fetal growth restriction, tragic. um, It's tragically associated with really high risk for stillbirth. But also even those babies born small often will go on to have their own, if they do come out um, and survive, they often go on to have cardiovascular um, issues of their own, metabolic disease, and, you know, their organs aren't as developed as they should be. So we know that that's um, where the dough had, so the development of, um, you know, adult onset diseases comes in. And so we really need to think a bit more about, diagnosis and therapeutics for those pregnancies where they're already on their way, they're already, um, you know, conceived, the placenta's insufficient, not working well. How do we find those babies or those pregnancies at highest risk? And can we actually intervene and, I guess, boost the placenta to work more effectively, more sufficiently for the growing needs of that baby? 
So some of your research has been looking at these areas. Um, what are what are some of the main areas that you have have specifically covered, and 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 what's the research that you've done, and then tried to move into, I guess, translating to a treatment? I'll touch on probably my main love at the moment, um, and that's looking at repurposing drugs for other conditions. And so one of these we took at just the um, medicine Nexium or Esomeprazole. And what we what we looked at in um, preclinically was whether or not these drugs could actually affect the pathophysiological stages of preeclampsia. So we looked at the placenta producing these toxins, as I mentioned earlier, which are anti-angiogenic or anti-blood vessel proteins, go out and target the maternal vasculature, block um, signaling pathways that are for healthy um, vascular function. And we know that it, it, in preeclampsia, this goes wrong and then you, the mother ends up being hypertensive as well as um, she has end organ failure, various other things. And so we really looked at the pathophysiology of the disease. So first, as I mentioned, the placenta, could we mitigate the production of these anti-angiogenic factors? And we could, which we were quite surprised by. But we had a bit of a hunch because people had looked in the gastric epithelium at some of these pathways. And one of the pathways we were really interested in was oxidative stress pathways, which we know the preeclamptic placenta is hypoxic, has high levels of oxidative stress because it hasn't got that really good blood flow to the placenta. And so we've also looked at vascular function and the effect these drugs can have on in models of the pathophysiology of preeclampsia on the vasculature. And we could see that these drugs were able to block dysfunction as well as dilate the vessels, which is what we need in a, in a preeclampsia therapeutic. We actually um, recruited women with preeclampsia early onset, so a, a more severe um, or a, a, a phenotype of disease that we really need to get a therapy for, so that early onset disease. And they were able to um, do this trial in women with and without preeclampsia. Now, in that study, we found that we weren't able to significantly um, prolong pregnancy. So in many ways, it was, um, you know, a negative finding from the trial. But what it's showed us when we go back to the preclinical studies is we were more doing a prevention approach in the lab. We were giving the mice the drug before the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia had come on. And so we've got an HMRC grant now to look at isomeprazole with and without another medicine, aspirin, which we know um, has a good, not complete, but it has a, around 18% aspirin alone, 18% um, reduction in preeclampsia. So we're now trying to add in isomeprazole to see if we can get that. And so there'll be more trials in, in this space, but we're also back in the lab looking at other um, therapies to look to repurpose those. And um, I recently got an NHMRC grant looking at th this pipeline of discovery for specifically for pregnancy disorders in women, so for fetal growth restriction and preeclampsia. Fantastic stuff. I'm sure that there are, are many people out there that will be relieved to know that there are advances happening in, uh, happening in this, this space. I don't think we'll ever truly cure preeclampsia because of the nature of the pathology, but I think we might be able to keep it at bay a little more so we can, you know, have that baby um, stay in for longer to get to a healthier gestation, but also hopefully reducing the impact on the mother's body 
that that um, dysfunctional placenta is having. And so, yeah, I'm hopeful that that we'll see some, um, you know, big movements in the next five to ten years. And is is that the case for a lot of different pregnancy complications that most of the research is really targeted towards trying to, I guess, minimise damage rather than prevent it entirely just because it's it's unlikely that we'll be able to prevent it? Yeah. I mean, some people are quite bold to think that that we should be able to prevent it or cure it. But um, I think in the reality, when you think about the mechanisms of disease, I, I don't think that's personally ever going to be achieved. And, and I worry that if we're trying for that, again, it's perfection rather than um, can we just intervene and, and reduce, reduce impact, reduce risk. Even if it's a a significant reduction rather than curing something completely that's having such a real tangible effect yeah exactly and and can we get more babies home safely can we get more mums through pregnancy and um, survive it and and not have long-term risks I think for me that would be that would be huge if if by the time I retire I could say that was part of something um, or I watched the field, the discipline move in that direction, I think it will be really, really exciting. And a new area of interest for us and, and some others is actually targeting therapies directly to the placenta as well, as opposed to treating, sometimes we don't need to treat mum if the placenta is dysfunctional, um, such as fetal growth restriction. And so if we can actually target therapies. So there's collaboration with the oncology or the, the cancer field to look at how they're getting chemotherapies to tumours. And, you know, I guess we're, we're using and copying a lot of that technology but adapting it for targeting therapies to the placenta or keeping the therapies only in the maternal system so that it affects her maternal vasculature but doesn't cross the placenta in the case where it might be dangerous for a growing fetus to receive that therapy as well. Yeah. And out of, out of interest, what are the targeting strategies? Like are we talking nanoparticles? Yeah. So we've got nanoliposomes um, developed now, so tiny little bubbles for anyone who's not familiar and they, they've got a liposome coat or a little fat kind of um, molecule coat. The other part, the other collaboration we've been doing is looking at these bacterial cells where we actually strip the outside, all the um, outside surface proteins as well as the contents. So you're left with just the envelope, I guess, or the bubble. You can fill it with, for us, we've used silencing RNAs to one of those toxins, um, the antiangiogenic factor soluble FLIT, and you can target it um, to placental-specific or placental-enriched um, targeting molecules, so peptides or proteins on the surface of the placenta. I'm so excited for all of that stuff to become a reality. Like I'm hoping that in my lifetime that'll be that stuff will will happen. The 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 fact that the um, oncology field has absolutely started trials in this space and, and have shown good good phase two and three safety trials and um, the benefit of this is the profound um, impact that you can have lower drug in in the system so lower drug um, in the, the vessels or the nanoparticles so you've and you've got less off target effects but you're also in this case you don't want sometimes those therapies to get across to the baby and so we might have amazing potent therapies but we know that they would also disrupt the embryo or they would be really damaging to embryo development and so our ability to keep them in the maternal system or in the placenta 
um, will be incredibly beneficial for actually developing new therapies. So I, I have just a fun question for you, Nat. What's your favorite thing about the placenta? Oh, I think the placenta, <laughs> I, I've got a, it's, it's the most amazing um, organ. If you think it develops for a sole purpose for, you know, around nine to 10 months in women and different times in different species, but it's really there to be many organs. So it filters blood. It's, um, it's got a huge immune system inside it. Um, it it's, it's regulates its own vasculature. It's, it's just an incredible conduit between the mother and the baby. And without it, there's no life. So for me, I think it's, it is one of the most essential and impressive organs that, that, you know, you could have. It's the start to life ultimately. Well, thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us today on Repro Radio. It was awesome to get your thoughts and such an intriguing discussion. Oh, thanks so much, Simon and Taylor. Um, it's been heaps of fun and I've loved chatting with you both. So Thanks so much for having me. It's time for some repro news with Naomi. What do you have for us this month? For our fun fact this month, this uh, comes thanks to uh, Simon um, and his love of TikTok. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, This was something that I was asked to fact check with the clinicians at work. So I thank the clinicians at Monash IVF for um, checking this one for me. And I did read a little bit about it as well. So um, basically uh, there's been a a, a misrepresentation of female reproductive anatomy. And this actually blew my mind because when I first saw the TikTok video, I was like... I don't know. We, I think we you all need a, doubted it. Yes. Yeah, we were all like, Simon, no, it's wrong. There is absolutely no way that this is true. Um, but the based on all the books that we've seen um, looking at female reproductive anatomy, um, we have this diagram of the uterus and we have our ovaries on either side of that sitting directly either side of it and obviously the fallopian tubes and the fimbrae and everything. Um Apparently, that's not what it looks like. Um, And we have um, the uterus is, uh, well, I should say the ovaries are sitting behind Mm. and the um, oviducts or the fallopian tubes sit underneath the ovaries at the back of the uterus. So they're kind of like, I'm not going to say carrying the um, ovaries, (laughs) Um, but they are sitting at the back of the uterus. And basically um, the reason why this was so interesting is that let's say if um, someone has to have a fallopian tube removed, um, there's a concern about given the fact that we ovulate from both ovaries, whether there might be an egg lost. And what's super interesting is that because of this positioning of the um, fallopian tubes towards the back, it can actually move to pick up the egg from the other ovary as opposed to having to swing its whole way around to if it's sitting or the ovaries are sitting on either side. Um, so it uh, definitely was super interesting. And apparently approximately one third of spontaneously conceived pregnancies are the result of a pickup of an egg from the ovary that's from the other side of where the fallopian tube is. The, the um, contralateral 
contralateral. <laughs> Thank you for the correct terminology. Um, yeah, so just all this time I thought that uh, the reproductive track looked totally different. I feel like I've been lied to my entire life. I really have been. <laughs> you know, I think about it I'm like, oh, yeah, that's where everything sits. No, not at all. It's all sitting towards the back. There you go. Like you, This just goes to show that it doesn't really matter how long you work in one field stuff can still surprise you. It really, yeah, it really does. And I mean, obviously diagrams have been designed to make them super easy, but yeah. to, to be able to visually see everything, but I think they should be changed. I think it is time to change our reproductive anatomy models to represent this. Or we just need some like sweet 3D VR so Ooh. that you can like you know, twist it around and see what it actually looks like in situ. That would be very, very cool. Oh, yeah. yes, of both, both yeah. reproductive tracks. Oh, I love this idea. Yeah, let's get yeah. it cranking. Educational all, designers. All about it. Yes, <laughs> amazing. Um, okay, so let's go into our conferences that are upcoming for this month and um, in future months. Um, so we have the, um, it's quite a long name, but definitely a very, um, very relevant conference for this month's episode. The International Federation of Placenta Associations, um, which is also in connection with the Australian and New Zealand Placental Research Association, are having a satellite meeting. Um, and this is in Hammer Springs in New Zealand on the 17th to the 18th of November. Now, abstracts close for this on the 26th of August, so make sure to put that date in. Now, this is directly on the back of um, the Society for Reproductive Biology, also is going to be held in New Zealand, um, which I'm sure everyone is very excited about. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and this is from the 13th to the 16th of November in um, Christchurch. And abstracts for this close on the 19th of August. So you still have a bit of time to get those um, last minute abstracts in. So definitely get writing. And um, another conference that I came across first, I think it's actually a world first conference, um, is Artificial Intelligence in Fertility Conference, uh, which I, yeah, thought was quite an interesting mix. But I suppose when it comes to like from the clinic's perspective mm. um, in reproductive biology, that's where a lot of AI is starting to, is either being already being used um, or is being developed so um, this- I feel like that's the one conference that you have to specify whether you mean AI, artificial I- insemination true. or artificial intelligence. <laughs> uh, I almost would be a little bit disappointed if I went to a conference that was just like, oh, but you do this anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> this is not this is not world first, not uh- world first. Um, no, absolutely right. That's a very good point, but they definitely mean artificial intelligence in yep. this case. <laughs> um, so this is on um, the 15th to the 18th of September, and it's actually um, held in uh, Dubrovnik, Croatia, which I have been told is such a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, have a uh, sneaky little trip on the side. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what conferences are kind of for as well, yeah. right? I mean, let's all be real here. <laughs> let's all be honest. It is also for the holiday. Um, there's no mention of abstracts, but just keep an eye out just in case anything changes on there. For our upcoming training, so I noticed um, actually quite a few associations have some incredible um 
uh, resource material, courses um, and education that you can uh, attend. Um, And this also applies to ESHRA. So they have hybrid campus events. Mm. Now, there is an upcoming event on um, the topic endometriosis, what nurses and midwives should know for their daily practice. So this is on the 15th to the 17th of September. It is a hybrid um, event. So it is both, it's actually in Paris and France, um, but you can, I believe it's virtual too. Um, And then later in the year, there's another on implantation failure, recurrent pregnancy loss and endometrial disorders. So it is, um, it, it is more from a clinical perspective, so people who are, you know, helping to manage these conditions, um, but also definitely relevant to scientists in the field as well. I believe mm-hmm. that there's a lot to get out of these um, these events that are coming up. There is another event that's coming up, and this one is held by the International Society of Andrology, uh, the Ep- Epididymis International Workshop, and I believe it is the eighth one that they've held so far. Um, this is from September 5th to the 7th, and it's held in Gaysen, Germany. I do apologize if I butchered that name, <laughs> um, but yes, in Germany in September. So pencil that one if you're interested. Now, for our awards and grants, I've got two here. Um, We've got a number of awards that are actually uh, being given by the American Society of Andrology. Um, Now, these are due, the nominations are due in August into early September from what I could see on the website. So the Distinguished Andrologist Award and also the Matthew P. Hardy Young Andrologist Award as well. Surely that's you, Naomi. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god. Pop your nominations in by uh, uh early I will be September. You. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, don't make me blush. Um and uh another uh award or actually it's a research grant that I came across that's very relevant um to those in uh placental placental research in pregnancy um research as well, um, is the held by the Society of Obstetric Medicine of Australia and New Zealand. Um, now, this research grant, I should say, it is offered every two years. So I don't believe it's being offered this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just thought I'd put it out there. At least it's, you know, useful for those who are within this field. Um, so it, the grant is designed to encourage research in the field of obstetric medicine. It's a single award of $10,000 to members of the society to fund either clinical or basic science research projects in this field, um, including pilot studies as well. Uh, so definitely a good little uh, bit of money that would be useful for your any research projects in the field. Yeah, always good to know and to just have a, a kind of running list of awards and grants and when they happen throughout the year. So even if it's not this year, just add it to your list. So for our publication of the month, um, we have Maternal Inheritance of Glucose Intolerance via Oocyte uh, TET3 Insufficiency. Now, I know it sounds very molecular. Yeah, you're going to need to translate that for us. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, that's totally, I mean, it's definitely outside of my expertise. But I do find any research really interesting where um, we can basically it further demonstrates how our health and the environment can affect our future children if you decide mm-hmm. to have children even before conception happens. Yeah. Um, so I think good reminders to keep in check with your health and make sure everything's all okay before before you decide to have any kids. 
basically what this article goes into is if um, women have diabetes before pregnancy, um, it was found that high blood sugar deregulates an enzyme known as TET3 in the eggs of female mice in this study. Um, and what it does is this prevents it from um, the enzyme from properly modifying sperm-derived DNA when the eggs have been fertilized. And as a consequence of all of this, which Sounds like a lot going on, but basically as a consequence, it found that um, it led to metabolic defects in adult progeny. Um, so as a result of having pre-gestational diabetes, it then led to this also in the adult progeny as well. Um, so yeah, very, like I said, very interesting um, to uh, look at the, the potential benefits of preconception um, interventions. And as I said, you know, like knowing these things before pregnancy and how our health and environment affects um, our future children. Yeah, I've done, I mean, I'm not going to say a lot of work. I've done a little bit of work in this space. My last postdoc was kind of about epigenetics a little bit, but mostly about fetal programming and, and kind of paternal effects. So I was looking at the effect that uh, diet of the father might have on his fertility, but then also on offspring. Mm. And it's something that we haven't talked about yet on this podcast, but no doubt in future seasons we'll look at this concept of dohad and, you know, that just the idea that stuff that parents are doing prior to conception can actually impact their offspring and their offspring throughout the offspring's life and into their adult health. It's such an interesting area and it's really cool. Like this, this study is a big step forward because it's just showing – that there is a, a mechanism there or there's at least one mechanism yes. that's being explored here um, and we're really just starting to get into that nitty-gritty of how do those effects happen. Yeah, absolutely. The transgenerational effects mm -hmm. um, for sure and this is just one example of this. Definitely something to make you feel guilty about if you've got kids already and something to give you anxiety <laughs> if you don't have kids yet. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm telling you now, like when I attend conferences and I see these talks, slight anxiety. I mean, it is very, like, I appreciate the research, but I'm just like, living in denial was far easier. <laughs> my thought is like, we turned out all right. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> it'll be fine. It, it's always fine. Ah, thanks for your insight. As always, Naomi, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Joining us to talk all things placenta and pregnancy today is Assistant Professor Rachel West, who's based at Auburn University. And Rachel's work delves into this really interesting area um, and really quite under-investigated area of why seemingly normal embryos fail to communicate with the uterus, um, leading to implantation failure. So Rachel, um, welcome to Repro Radio. I know I've given you a little bit of an intro, but what are you actually working on at the moment a bit more specifically? Right now, my job is so much more administrative than I would like for it to be. Uh, but the research questions that I'm kind of moving towards are uh, related to some work I did in my postdoc, where, like you said, um, and my postdoc was at a fertility clinic. And when I thought of fertility clinics before I got there, it was much more 
what's wrong with the egg and women are aging and their eggs aren't very good or they have a low um, supply of eggs where now we're kind of moving towards, well, that can be part of the problem and chromosomal errors are part of the problem. But what's happening to these seemingly normal embryos that for some reason can't seem to communicate appropriately with the uterus? So I'm really interested in that of uterine and maternal crosstalk with the embryo and how the uterus and the placenta kind of work together to facilitate implantation and how that really early peri-implantation stage placenta seems to be building all of this machinery to better respond to the uterus. Um, I'm really fascinated with interferon receptors and interferons during the implantation stage and how obviously uh, the uterus uses a lot of interferon signaling to tell the placenta migrate and invade this far, but then stop. So um, an immune response is very important during this time, but what happens when you have too many interferons? Like if a woman has an acute infection, what might be, um, how might those interferon receptors be working against her? And that's something I'm really interested in right now. Wow. I don't know what to comment on first. The fact that you sound like you are really busy being a, a brand new assistant professor or how interesting all those research questions are. I think there's so many factors that we don't really think about, as you say, it's it's what's wrong with the egg. Do you think a lot of these factors that do potentially lead to this earlier pregnancy loss are uh, not as well recognized sort of in broader society? I mean, I think perhaps it's not talked about as much. Definitely. Um, I definitely think it's a very hot new area in fertility world and reproduction. But um, for broader society, I think that to take it even a step further removed, how little broader society even understands how prevalent uh, early pregnancy loss is. Um, from the fertility clinic, we es estimate about 60% of all pregnancies are lost in the kind of preclinical stage. So in the first month, first six weeks, and uh, many women suffer from recurrent pregnancy loss. And that's something that we just don't talk about because as a society, you know, we're told that pregnancy loss and uh, miscarriages are something that should be suffered privately and not talked about. So I think we're finally moving forward with uh, people being willing to talk about their stories and willing to talk about infertility. But I definitely don't even think that we're even at a place to have conversations about factors leading to pregnancy loss, because as society, we're still not even talking about pregnancy loss. Absolutely. So there's so much stigma there. It's so interesting that you are really effectively addressing this stigma, but then also working in this amazing science as well. Hopefully it ends up being a win-win um, as we progress, sort of get some more information out. So moving, I guess, a little bit away from what sounds like some seriously amazing science. You're in quite an interesting role, I guess, for a lot of early career researchers because you're sort of at that the beginning of the tenure track stage, which I think for a lot of people seems very hard to achieve. How did you get to this sort of stage in your career and what's your what's your day-to-day -day like? Although it sounds like it's quite administrative at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, my position is within a vet school, so I am at Auburn University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Um, my background before my postdoc at the fertility clinic was animal and dairy science, so my undergraduate degree was animal science, and my master's degree was working with chicken, primordial germ cells, and induced pluripotent stem cells. 
I grew up around animals. I loved animals. I knew that I wanted to kind of work in that niche. And then when I went to my PhD, I was working with human cell lines and then sheep as a biomedical model. So no longer kind of working in that area where I was using animals to think about animal science questions. I was using animals to kind of work with uh, human-related questions. And I found that biomedical translational medicine niche really fascinating. Um, I then moved into strictly human work at the fertility clinic. And I think having this extremely well-rounded or some might say a unique background where it went from chickens to sheep to humans uh, definitely made me at least intriguing to search committees, especially places I was almost exclusively applying for positions that were at vet schools like this. Um, my day-to-day is a lot of negotiating with suppliers and tracking down biosafety cabinets that might be in stock and things like that right now. Um, but something that I have really loved that I've kind of challenged myself that it it's more of like, I guess, a week to week since I've started at Auburn is meeting a new person a week. So uh, today I met with someone at, we have a school of osteopathic medicine here. I met with two of the OBGYN chairs of osteopathic medicine to talk about maybe um, working on a more clinical project together. Last week I met with the librarians at Auburn University to talk about data management and um, answer some questions like that. And that's been probably my most favorite part of my new schedule as an assistant professor is Um, meeting new people at Auburn and talking about their research and getting excited about their research um, and learning how to be a better part of the Auburn community. And I think that that's been pretty cool. Yeah, I think that is really cool. What a great way to network. And I suppose moving to a new place as well, kind of a good way to to sort of build your social network as well. Right. And I, yeah, people are nice about letting me cold call. I like, I think that, um, being a new faculty member, they're like, okay, you're, you're like desperate. You're kind of looking for, for new connections and maybe some guidance. And so I have cold called many people since I've gotten here and I've only been met with generosity, which has uh, been wonderful. Yeah, that's amazing. It's yeah, it's good to hear that in these cases you can actually get quite a positive response. And it sounds like you've had a really good response. And definitely talking about those different areas of research is very inspiring, I think. Gosh, you've got such an interesting background. I didn't realize you'd come all the way from animal science to what's very much a human focus, I suppose, now, despite your vet school team. Have you got any real uh highlights in your in your career throughout this very varied journey actually is there anything that sort of stands out as a I would say when I was at the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine my first year year and a half there we were working with donated human embryos and using this protocol called extended embryo culture where For the first time, for a lot of people, we were able to grow embryos from the blastocyst stage all the way to about day 13. And um, the technique was relatively new. Um, So knowing that, you know, oh, I'm one of few people that's like done this and worked in this and just watching these embryos grow was very, uh, I mean, it was humbling and it was exciting. But my absolute favorite thing we did, and it seems so simple when it comes to an experiment, is I literally just put a time-lapse camera in the incubator and took a picture of one of these embryos from day six 
to day 13, we took a picture every five minutes and then turned it into a time-lapse movie. And so at the end, it's like a three and a half minute movie by literally just watching an embryo go from a little day six blastocyst all the way to this complex. Uh, the placenta had, uh, you could just see morphologically, the placenta had three different cell types and you could see this embryo growing. You could see cells migrating away. It was incredible. And it was just one of those experiences where you're like, I think that I've done something before that no one else has done. And this is like just one, this is why I got into science. This, uh, I still watch that movie all the time. Just like watching my research in a, a movie format like that is just such an incredible moment. It'll be hard to top. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's really nice, I think, to look back on that and realize what you can actually do yourself. Look, we're sort of uh, we're starting to get on the the end of our time, so I might just finish up by asking you: Have you got any advice for all these emerging reproductive biologists, particularly in their early career stage, um, who want to follow a similar career path? Because I think really you're sort of that classic model of of tenure success, which is becoming more and more unusual these days. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, um, have a couple of things. I always had a mentor outside of my classic PI. So I, you know, your PI is going to be able to tell you, here's what your science looks like and help you with your science. But a lot of times, um, because of that relationship, maybe you don't feel as free to, to ask questions about moving forward or am I going crazy or am I too sensitive or what should I do about this opportunity? So starting from my master's, I always had uh, a mentor that was familiar with my science, but wasn't bogged down with the details. You're not stuck in one area just because you did your PhD or your master's. Again, I started working with chicken primordial germ cells and then moved into um, human cell lines and then was working with human embryos. And now I'm working with human stem cells. And you, you don't have to stay in that one niche. And I think that being well-rounded um, and going after what you what fascinates you and what drives you as a scientist is going to pay off so much more than thinking you have to stay in one system. And then finally, do the outreach. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like I volunteered at a conference or I did this, but uh, there were things that I didn't think that uh, would help my career or maybe I wasn't qualified for that mentors gave me encouragement to do, like being on the board of directors at uh, SSR as the trainee rep was huge for my career. It took a lot of time out of the lab, but I got a lot of face time with people. I did animal welfare judging when I was in my PhD, and I can't tell you how many times that came up in interviews where people are like, tell me more about this. Uh, so that stuff that you think that takes you away from the lab and might be detrimental, honestly, it makes you well-rounded and teaches you a lot of soft skills that I'm learning right now are incredibly important as an assistant professor. Um, so those are probably my big three things. Absolutely. I think all of that sounds like really valuable advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview because it's been a very interesting chat and I'm really excited to see what comes out of West Lab in the next couple of years. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Once again, a very interesting discussion. I mean, 
pregnancy complications is something that I've always, I guess, just been aware of in the background, but it's crazy hearing some of the statistics that that Nat mentioned, particularly about preeclampsia in terms of the fact that not only are we still losing a lot of babies to this, we're actually losing mothers as well. So obviously something that really needs kind of targeted research to develop not necessarily cures, but definitely some sort of effective clinical treatment. Definitely. And uh, look, I was, I was only the father, uh, you know, dealing with the, uh, you know, pregnancy of, of, of my partner. And I found the, the whole thing absolutely terrifying if I'm, I'm honest with you and all the things that, that could possibly go wrong. And I've got to say that uh, if I take a, a step back as a scientist and, and just think, about myself as a well, I wasn't the patient, but but just as somebody who was supporting somebody through that, um, you know, it's so wonderful to know that there are these incredibly talented researchers, uh, clinicians who uh, are really working to to improve the improve women's lives and to improve the you know healthy outcomes of pregnancy and and to give um, babies the best start in in life and. One of the things I loved uh, hearing about is is how we, particularly in, in terms of assisted reproduction, are reframing the um, the idea of what is success. Uh, you know, away mm. from just okay, it's uh, you know it's the chemical definition of of pregnancy post uh, you know post a transfer, and, and thinking about how the the job doesn't end there. You know, the the goal is is to really you know have a a really healthy um, baby at the at the end of that who has the the, the best uh, opportunity for a great start in in life so look if if I was thinking about research that I wanted to support um, you know personally this is the sort of stuff which uh, I think is just you know so important and so worthy of, of funding yeah and you know Nat brought up an, an interesting concept as well you know speaking on that idea that it's really a continuum. We need to think about what happens post-implantation as well. You know, this idea that maybe we should be collaborating a bit more, working with people who that's more the space that they work in, but you know you've got a problem or a research model that really might be having impacts on implantation, on placentation, on, you know, fetal growth restriction. Don't just have your experiments all end at the point of implantation, maybe partner up with somebody that you know is more in that space and, and try and work together and, and see what you find. One other interesting thing um, was the, you know, this cross-disciplinary stuff where you, the potential for things like nanotechnology to enable mm. targeted uh, use of, of therapies to, you know, only uh, impact on the mother or, or the placenta and not, um, you know, influence the, the baby at, at all there. Uh, I, I love all of that stuff. You know, when, whenever you're, you're crossing those dis disciplines, I think it, it really takes research to the, the next level. So super exciting to, to think about what we'll see there over the coming years. So thanks once again to our guests, Nat and Rachel. And next month, what are we talking about, Simon? What are we talking about next month? We are going to be speaking about heat stress. And look, there's going to be uh, a, an agricultural focus on this episode as well. We've got two really fantastic guests 
first one is uh, Prof Professor Pete Hansen from the University of, of Florida, who is just one of the, the global gurus of, uh, of heat stress research. He's going to be focusing in on, on dairy cattle and, and talking about embryos as well. And then we've got Dr. Gordon Refshorgi from New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, who has done a lot of work and has a real keen interest in the effects of heat stress on sheep reproduction in the, uh, you know, in, in the Australian agricultural setting. So looking forward to, to speaking to those two blokes and, um, and having a, a greater understanding of what is a, an increasingly important issue in reproduction. Thanks again to our guests and sponsor for this episode, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for joining us. For more information about our guests today or Repro News, check out the show notes for this episode on our website. If you've got a question for our next guest, send us an email or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Repro Radio is hosted and produced by me, Taylor Pinney, and executive produced by Simon DeGraff. Repro News by Naomi Bernicic, ACR Spotlight Reporting by Kelsey Poole, Production Assistance by Jess Rickard, Maddie Vanderhoek and Sophie Waugh, and Audio Design by Dylan Gerrily. Well, how about you do it then? Yeah. What up? <laughs>